You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we are talking about principal stratification. You don't know what that is? Then stay tuned. It's a really good interview with Björn and Kasper who recently published about it. So stay tuned. It also has something to do with estimates, by the way. A very, very hot topic still. Björn and Kasper, together with a couple of other statisticians, published about this topic. And this topic is getting more and more attention in various fields. And it first came across for me in the uh, ICE9 addendum draft. And then I learned about it and I was really intrigued because it has a lot to do with things that I have been working on for quite some time, more on the observational study side. So it's a really, really interesting topic and you can learn much more about it in this interview with Uh, both of them. If you are not on LinkedIn, I would recommend very highly to jump over and go to in LinkedIn and follow me there. Very, very easy. And that way you get much more additional content. You can also reach out to me, ask questions about this podcast and whether you would like to have a different interview guest or a different episode or maybe, maybe you become an interview guest yourself. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leaning and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities because there's an ever-growing video-on-demand content library that you can have a look into and learn from. And there is so many happening at the moment. Lots of PSI webinars and lots of more stuff that you then get access for pretty much free. The reduced rate is only 20 pounds for non-high income countries and 95 pounds for high income countries. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician, and this time it's again with Benjamin. Hi, Benjamin. How are you doing? Hi, Alexander. Yeah, it's been a while. So, summer's passing on and uh, coming to an end, and uh, here we are again. And today we have two other German-speaking statisticians, so Kaspar and Björn. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks uh, for the invitation to talk to you today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the invitation. I'm also doing fine. Okay, very good. So maybe we can start with a short introduction of yourself. Um, Kaspar, what have, how is your career looking like up to now? And what is, um, where did you come across the concept of principal stratification? Yeah, so uh, I work for uh, Roche in Basel. I joined Roche in Basel about eight years ago. And I initially worked on projects in hematology mainly as a study statistician and project lead, project lead statistician. And about five years ago, I have joined the Methods Collaboration and Outreach Group within Roche, 
um, who does basically what the name says, so methodological developments, uh, adapt methodology for the Roche statisticians, a lot of collaboration within the company and outside of the company and, and outreach activities. And the principal stratification approach, uh, I have first learned about this when I studied the ICHE9 draft addendum. Um, I, I haven't been aware of this approach before and, and haven't looked into the epidemiological literature where that actually originated uh, before I have learned about it when, when studying the addendum. Okay, and Björn? Yeah, so I'm a statistician also located in Basel in the statistical methodology group at Novartis. I've been there now for roughly 10 years and working on all sorts of different projects. So on, on those findings, some of you might have heard of the MCP mod methodology. That's something that I was involved in in the past quite a bit. I'm also working on projects related to subgroup analyses, subgroup identification, um, Bayesian statistics, and, and estimates, causal inference um, quite recently. And how, how did I learn about principal stratum? I think it's similar as Casper. Um, I think maybe a bit earlier, maybe a year or so before the draft addendum was released, I first heard about it. And for me, causal inference was always a bit of a mystery. And I think I took this opportunity to, to understand it a bit more and, and get into the topic. And I think it's, it's a quite, quite an interesting and fascinating field to, to learn about. Okay, so maybe, so maybe getting to the core of the whole topic is what actually is um, principal stratification? Mm -hmm. So I think the topic uh, was, or well, the principal stratification was introduced in a paper in 2002 um, by Frank Arkes and Rubin. And I think the ideas for that had been around for a while, but I think in this paper, um, they actually gave it a name. And I think that's also useful. And it was really established as a separate um, statistical approach. And I think the easiest way to describe it is sort of as a subgroup analysis, uh, where the subgroup is defined by a post-baseline event or intercurrent event in the ICH-9 addendum language. Um, now, the problem is, of course, these post-baseline events might be influenced by treatment. So it's improper just to compare um, the subgroup you know, of patients who have the intercurrent event on treatment and control. But the principal stratum here, the idea is that you define the um, subgroup of interest in terms of potential outcomes. So- Can you give an example for that? I think one example from the ICG-9 addendum directly is um, you might be interested in the treatment effect for patients who don't uh, experience a certain toxicity uh, in, a, in a specific trial. I mean, that's an interesting question also for a patient. I mean, if I'm able to tolerate that treatment, what will my treatment effect be like? And for that purpose, you can um, and then define, yeah, that would be an ideal situation for a principal stratum strategy where you would ask the question in those patients who don't have the um, toxicity, what's the treatment effect? Of course, the challenge here is that um, you cannot, on the control arm, you cannot really identify or you don't know who are the right control patients for this um, uh, for these patients on the treatment arm. So on the control arm, you don't know who are the patients who wouldn't have this um, uh, toxicity on the treatment arm. So that's that's where um, maybe the challenge is with principal stratum. But I would just like to contrast or to, to make it, to make clear that it's quite different from the improper subgroup analysis where you would compare on the test treatment arm, those who have no toxicity to the control arm, where you, uh, those patients who don't have a toxicity, because, I mean, this would be an improper subgroup analysis, and that's, that's quite different from the idea of principal stratum. 
Yeah, and see, it would be improper because then you basically, you know, if you would do that straightforward, you compare yeah, apple, apples with pies or something like this. And it's, it's because it's, it's not a randomized comparison anymore. If you speak to a non-statistician, how would you describe this, this problem with the, you know, not being randomized anymore? It is uh, very much as you, as you just mentioned. So I, I think in order to better understand uh, why this is an improper subgroup analysis and why this would be a problem, uh, I, I would talk to a non-statistician first explaining what is actually the benefit of randomization. And when we randomize, we want to generate groups that are comparable with respect to the distribution of their potential outcome. Now, that's already maybe uh, not a quite statistical approach and uh, a, a more loose way of saying it is, is maybe we want to have these groups comparable in terms of baseline covariates. That's an implication of, of what uh, randomization actually does. So that the only difference between two groups is the treatment. So if you find an effect at the end of the day, it must be the treatment. That is one way to establish uh, causality. Now, as Bjorn mentioned, sometimes you would like to compare like with like based on observing the groups only after randomization. For example, uh, comparing groups through by a toxicity that is induced by the treatment. But as Bjorn already mentioned, a simple comparison of those who experienced the clinical event on the treatment arm to, for example, all control patients means that the patient characteristics in the two groups are likely not the same anymore. You are not comparing two groups. For example, if uh, if the odds for older patients to get the toxicity uh, are, are higher, then it's clear that the groups are, don't have the identical age distribution anymore. So it's, it's difficult to disentangle. Is it now uh, the treatment or is it the different composition of the groups you're comparing? And principal stratification may help you to turn that question into some kind of fair comparison, uh, making some assumptions. So in a nutshell, the primary motivation is, is being able to compare like with like uh, based on subgroups built by some post-randomization uh, event. And, and how, how do you do that like from, from the methodology point of view? So is, what is the technique behind so that you can on a post-baseline um, observation kind of define comparable groups? I think there are different approaches on, on assumptions. I mean, you need to utilize assumptions and typically these assumptions are rather strong. And another point is also, I think these assumptions are very situation specific. So it's not like you have one specific analysis technique that you can just utilize. I think it depends quite a bit on the specific situation that, you, that you're working on or the question that you're facing. I think one approach, and I think that also, also the most um, Yeah, most plausible or most intuitive approach is obviously to sort of to try to describe, for example, the group that has no toxicity on treatment in terms of baseline covariates. And the ideal case would, of course, be that you can then predict on the control arm um, who the patients would be who don't have um, that toxicity. That's not very often the case that you can, you know, perfectly predict those control arm patients. So then the next idea, and the, here is where we're entering um, 
an area that's very similar to propensity score analysis or observational data analysis, um, you can try to work with these no unmeasured confounders assumptions. So you try to identify um, those um, covariates that maybe predict the outcome um, and those covariates that maybe predict um, intercurrent event occurrence. And then you try to balance those um, across the groups. So you, you see how, how, how these confounders are distributed in your test treatment um, arm with those who have the intercurrent event and you try to balance, you find the right, try to find the right control group patients with a similar distribution of the confounders. So with matching, weighting, regression adjustment, there are different ways of doing that. So these are all the different bias control um, adjustments that we know from epidemiological research where we have, you know, observational studies and you have people that were treated with drug A and people that were treated with drug B and then you want to compare A to B, but that was not randomized. So you need to have some kind of bias yeah. control techniques to, to make them more comparable. And yeah, so you mentioned the um, assumptions of no unmeasured confounders. Um, so that means all your baseline uh, variables um, you need only all the baseline variables to predict uh, whether someone gets this event or not. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's the assumption that's underlying this. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you don't use any other post baseline covariates. Yeah, I mean, there, there are. As I said, it's depending quite a bit on the specific situation, and there are. Um, other assumptions, for example, in causal inference, you have more um, for this situation, you have assumptions like monotonicity or exclusion restriction, where you sort of try to link what you have observed on one arm and um, extrapolate it, what it could mean on the other arm. So, for example, if one patient has a certain intercurrent event on one arm, you think, okay, if a person has it on this arm, it will also would have had it on the other arm. So, you're sort of also trying to use post-baseline information on that one arm that you've observed and extrapolate it to the other arm. So that's uh, sort of the monotonicity assumption. There's exclusion restriction. I don't think can go into the details here, but I think they are, you know, whether you would like to use those, it really depends on the question um, that you're interested in. Hmm. But, it, but it sounds that this is kind of a, like an area where, which is not intuitive in, in normally to a statistician. So what are usually the critical points that are raised when you discuss the, the use of um, principal stratification? Um, yes, so after mentioning this in the ICHE 9 addendum, I think statisticians in the pharmaceutical industry or in drug development have started to look into this and, uh, and also regulators. And um, I think we are still in the process of better understanding all these methodologies and where they fit into a drug development landscape. Uh, but you're right, there, uh, there are concerns around this strategy, and uh, maybe I can, I can discuss a few of those. Um, one key concern is related, again, to randomization. I think in, in pharmaceutical drug development, uh, and, and, and that's expected by regulators, we are used to make causal statements based on randomization. Um, with this principal stratification strategy, um, we randomization remains so it's not completely identical to observational data where you have absence of randomization randomization is still a key ingredient when you want to estimate these principal stratification treatment effects but you complement randomization with assumptions so 
the, the conclusions you draw are not, the causal conclusions you draw are not exclusively relying on randomization. It's kind of randomization plus assumptions. So, mm. and I think this is not something we are very much used to in pharmaceutical drug development. Uh, on top of that, most assumptions you are actually making are non-verifiable. Mm. Uh, and that's also something we are used from causal inference, from epidemiology. That means if, even if you have an infinite number of observations or patients, you would not be able to verify these assumptions. They need to come from subject matter considerations. You need to put in scientific knowledge uh, in, in order to, to just discuss, are the assumptions that we are making, uh, are they uh, meaningful and, and, and reasonable in, uh, in this scenario? Mm. Um, Another thing is, as we just experienced when we tried to describe it, I think this principle stratification, as it relies on the potential outcomes framework and, uh, and principle stratification or principle strata membership is defined via uh, outcomes under both treatments within this potential outcomes framework, it, is, it may be difficult to interpret or it's more challenging to interpret than uh, a usual subgroup analysis for a subgroup that is defined at baseline. Um, and then there are other more technical aspects. So the assumptions typically are across worlds. So you, you compare, for example, uh, the, the outcome for a control patient to the intercurrent event had that patient received treatment. So you compare counterfactuals that you will never have access to typically. Uh, and that's where the scientific plausibility enters. You need to explain these through whether it's scientifically plausible, yes or no. I think another important aspect is that you need to robustify the conclusions you draw using sensitivity analyses. Uh, and that's how we try to, to counterbalance a little bit all these assumptions we need to make. You need then to add meaningful and, and uh, a big enough number of, uh, of sensitivity analyses. Mm. And, but, so these are, I think, the key critic points. But I, I, I would invite everyone to consider the aspect that the, the questions we are answering with this principle stratification approach, they're typically, they're scientifically very, very relevant. And because they are scientifically relevant, the questions will be answered in some way. And very often in the past, and even in pharmaceutical drug development, we have taken shortcuts to answer these questions. We have simplified things to an extent that is maybe going too far. And we have just pretended to answer these questions in a, in a causal sense. And initially we maybe just did some analysis and then some results came out and, and then we draw the causal conclusion, but maybe that conclusion can actually not be drawn because implicitly these conclusions are only applicable under some implicit assumptions that we made that we are actually were not aware of or we didn't make transparent. And I think that's the big benefit of this causal inference framework. Yes, it is difficult to interpret. Yes, estimation might be difficult, but the assumptions are transparent. And then we can discuss as scientists about the assumptions. Are they meaningful? And only if they are meaningful, the causal conclusion can be drawn that they actually go at the end. So let's look a little bit deeper into, into this framework. And, and my experience is it's very often quite helpful to look into kind of what happens at, at the margins. Yeah. So, so let's first assume... The, if you want to predict this intercurrent event in, in the one treatment group and plug in all the, all the data that you have and says, you know, there's no predictability at all. 
Yeah, so, so basically, there is you gain no kind of um, precision. There's, you know, it's completely at random. What does that mean from a principal stratum approach? Yeah, I think, I mean, the first uh, approach that I outlined rely would rely on exactly this predictability. Um, but the second approach is on the no unmeasured confounders. So I would actually start by looking into the outcome. Do you have, usually in clinical trials, we have good ideas on what are predictors of outcome. I mean, most of the cases are established indications, maybe even established medicine, and you know what are the main predictors or prognostic covariates. And I would actually start from that um, and see, well, among those important predictors, you know, that have been generated by, you know, a lot of experience in, in clinical development, do we see any imbalance in those um, outcome um, covariates in terms of the principal or in, in terms of the intercurrent event occurrence? Yeah. Right. So I wouldn't start with I wouldn't start with the predicting the intercurrent event, but rather with the outcome, because that's where we where we have lots of experience already in most of the indications and then see, is there a difference in the uh, intercurrent event occurrence? And if there is no, if the, these covariates don't predict intercurrent event occurrence, then maybe it's not such a bad sign, because that means you know, we have balanced already or these, the intercurrent event occurrence is independent of, you know, the covariates that predict outcomes. So then it's maybe not such a bad thing that you couldn't predict the intercurrent event if you believe in this no unmeasured confounders assumption. Yeah. So, so that would basically then mean that, you know, there is, you don't need to pay a price. Yeah, so, so the uh, the principal stratification approach would be very very similar to the approach uh, in terms of the um, just comparing both randomized groups overall. Yeah, isn't it? Well, yeah. The 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 price is the quite big assumption, um, which yeah. is an across world assumption, and you you would need to. Um, yeah, sensitivity analysis would need to be performed for this one. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, there might be things that you haven't measured that impact the outcome and intercurrent event occurrence. And we, we don't know about them. But I think maybe compared to observational studies, we are a bit in a better situation because maybe we collect more and more systematically. Um, for example, baseline covariates. Yeah. Let's look at the other spectrum. So let's say we can identify that it's only females that have below age of 40 that have this. And, you know, there's 100% predictability that it's only this subgroup. What, what would that mean for the uh, principal stratification analysis? I think if you can perfectly predict, then you're also in a very good situation, actually. Then, because then you can just see on the control arm who are the patients to, to identify. And then, yeah. It's and quite then easy. Would, yeah. yeah, then you just kind of take the, can exactly these patients and, and make a, yeah, basically so, a straightforward subgroup analysis. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so that's, that's pretty good to understand. So, so, uh, on the one extreme, it would be more or less like comparing all patients from the comparator arm to only those patients that, that had the intercurrent event or didn't have the intercurrent events on the treatment arm and would be very, very close to this, you know, straightforward randomized comparison. Or on the other hand, if it's perfectly predictable, it would be a straightforward subgroup analysis and you would look in, into only these patients um, 
uh, in both arms. Yeah, and, the, okay. and, and the challenge is just in between. Yeah, it's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Well, in between, I think it's also, you're also not in a bad place. I mean, I don't want to oversell this now, but I mean, if you have some predictability, I mean, that's what you expect, that you have some predictability of the intercurrent event um, and you have some reweighting. I mean, it also makes it a bit more plausible. I think if you, If, if, if you are in a situation where you cannot really predict the intercurrent event, it's, it's, I mean, theoretically, it's a good position to be in, but in practice, it's also a bit, you know, you don't maybe feel 100% comfortable with this. So I think, yeah. Yeah, I was just more referring then to the to the point what, what we had before that the interpretation of the results, you know, the, the 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 more it's kind of mix of both, like the randomization and also factors that come in like retrospectively, um, it's probably more difficult to interpret and to to um, you know convince um, whoever uh, you present this to. So, but yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's the technique about um, principle certification to find it um, somewhere between the two extremes. Yeah. Okay, let's let's go a little bit into the more practical things. So what should, you know, a statistician said um, wants to have a look into this, do read, uh, have have experience of. So so you're asking what uh, what what a statistician should look into in yeah. in terms of getting getting up to speed with this methodology. So yeah. This led me to look into causal inference more. And I think as statisticians working in pharmaceutical industry, this is a topic we should, uh, we should try to embrace and, and try to understand at least and try to, to, to find out where it could be useful. Um, and what, what I found very instructive is a book by Imbens and Rubin, Causal Inference for Statistics, Social and Biomedical Sciences, where this potential outcomes framework is very nicely explained and developed. Uh, and they talk a lot about assignment mechanisms and randomization is the most straightforward way of assignment. And then you can start to weaken that and, and you enter this, this, these fields of uh, what we typically uh, would, would call epidemiology and which might be useful for, for what we do. There are other famous books. Hernan and Robbins have written a book, What If? And that's actually available for download online still on, uh, on their webpage. Um, there is the, the Book of Why by Judea Pearl talking about causal inference from a maybe a little bit a different angle. Uh, so these are, these are, in my opinion, very good starting points for statisticians. Um, of course, uh, we, uh, we would like to, uh, to propose you to read uh, the paper that we've written that comes out of the Oncology Estimate Working Group, where we discuss precisely what we discussed today. What role can principal stratification play in pharmaceutical drug development? And it's, it's like at some point, if you discover this hammer, you see these nails everywhere in pharmaceutical drug development. So we have come up with many examples where we think principal stratification can help provide uh, inference based on transparent assumptions. And if you think about how often does it actually happen that you, would, that you are interested in subgroups generated by some post-randomization event, think of exposure, think of toxicity, all these kind of, of questions. I think it's plausible that this strategy can be useful in, in many instances. And uh, besides our paper, this methodology has already been applied uh, in, in also in, in health uh, in health interactions. And there is one quite, I think, one very early application from our Novartis colleagues 
uh, about Bayesian inference for a principal stratum estimate to assess the treatment effect uh, in a subgroup characterized by post-randomization event occurrence. So that is a paper that has been published in Statistics in Medicine. That's also a very nice starting point. And this is describing methodology that has been used for a drug and the European Public Assessment Report from the EMA, where this analysis is described in terms of EMA interactions is publicly available. So the, the drugs called Ziponimod and the EPAR is publicly available. So if you're interested also in a health authority uh, framework, how this can be applied and, and how this is described eventually in the regulatory documents, that could be a very good starting point. To look. Yeah, I think that's a really good comment. So, so very often we think about theoretical things and what would be nice, but this is actually applied and discussed between sponsors and, and regulators. And uh, so we are far beyond the, yeah, what if, <laughs> space we are actually in how do we do it and and um, how can we practically uh, learn about it and yes in terms of intercurrent events yes there's of course oncology there's always this this problem but uh, i think it's pretty much a similar problem in most of the different drugs especially if you have look into more longer term treatment you will nearly always have dropouts or if you have a treatment that has early on some um, safety problems that uh, trigger patients to drop out or there's, um, you know, treatment switches or there's, you know, there's a background uh, treatment is optimized, which you have in lots of different disease states. All of these kind of intercurrent events uh, can play a role and uh, then you would like to have um, approach that more yeah takes this principles ratification uh, approach okay very good so in terms of implementing that from a um, uh, programming standpoint i think that's not that difficult isn't it so so the you know for these kind of prediction and regression analysis we would use the straightforward analysis that we would use in in other circumstances as well isn't it so so it's logistic regression analysis and uh, other regression approaches and, and things like that, isn't it? Yeah, I think for the, yeah, depends a bit on the assumptions that you utilize. If you make this no unmeasured confounders assumption, yes, I think that's exactly right what you what you just said. I mean, you can use those approaches, but for example, if you like to, I think Ruben actually um, advocated quite strongly um, a Bayesian modeling for the principal stratum approach in, in, the, in the original paper. And of course there, I mean, there's also software available, but it's um, it maybe a bit more complex than a standard regression analysis. And uh, maybe it's worthwhile mentioning that uh, if, if people are interested, we have implemented a very basic example uh, in a markdown file that is uh, available online as a supplementary material to our paper. So that that illustrates exactly what you are uh, what you're saying, Alexander. Uh, how you can set up such an analysis under one of the assumptions, and that could serve as a starting point if you want to implement that. Yeah, that's that's always great if you have some programs together with the papers. So you can highly recommend that yeah. yeah we will reference this and then in the on the page for this podcast yeah just just go to the show notes and you'll will find all these references okay very good so we talked a lot about this awesome approach to better understand how treatment differences work out when 
uh, we want to consider um, intercurrent events. We have talked where this is coming from, that there's a lot of um, similarities with certain epidemiological approaches that has been used for quite some time. And it's also referenced in the uh, E9 addendum and therefore plays a critical role in uh, drug development and is already applied in interactions between sponsors and pharmaceutical companies and therefore leads to the decision of whether or not to approve a new drug and uh, so it's really something that every statistician in this industry should be aware about. And um, it's great that there's a lot of resources already available and we'll link to all of these, including, of course, a paper from Kasper and Björn in the podcast show notes. So with that, um, Kasper, Björn, any kind of final thoughts uh, from you for the listener? Maybe one aspect, uh, just when, when you mentioned that this has been used in, in getting drugs approved, um, I, I think one important aspect that we need to mention here is um, it, we consider it to be very unlikely that you would specify principal stratification as your primary endpoint or your primary analysis in a, in a clinical trial. Because if, if, you, if you're interested in a population generated by an intercurrent or post-randomization event, um, and, and this would be your primary interest. I think there could be other trial designs that actually would more directly target that population of interest. So the role that we see for, for principal stratification in drug development is more to support and, and help answer clinically relevant secondary questions. Um, so, th so that is one caveat that, that I would like to, to add here. Yeah. I mean, one important aspect is also, um, and we haven't discussed it here, I mean, we always talked about these additional things, complications that can occur throughout the trial, but I think there's also one area where principal stratum maybe could go in the direction of being used more as a primary analysis. I think in our paper and here we really discussed, you know, these, these other areas, but for example, in, in bioequivalence trials where traditionally um, the ITT analysis wouldn't be considered um, conservative anymore. Um, I think in these areas, there have been proposals that principal stratum plus a uh, sensitivity analysis maybe could be considered um, for a primary analysis. And then similar, similar ideas are floating around. Nothing concrete exists at the moment. Also in non-inferiority studies. But I think these are quite different from what we have discussed in the podcast so far. I mean, that's a, it's a new area and uh, developing still, I think. And, and maybe another aspect that's worthwhile to be mentioned is um, if you're working in drug development, then maybe you're not so much aware of, of what happens with vaccines, for example. But mm -hmm. in, in the vaccine field, these strategies have actually been used for quite a long time, quite, quite soon after this has been proposed in 2002. Uh, vaccine trials have been set up using this strategy. And it's potentially also gaining ground now when we develop COVID-19 vaccines. So a question you would ask there is if you vaccine everyone, um, but some patients maybe would still get uh, the disease under study, is maybe then the severity of the disease different from if, they if you had not vaccinated? And, uh, and there a principal stratification strategy might also potentially be useful. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very good. So that goes back to yeah, 
uh, questions that probably lots of people around the world think about, and it's uh, it's very relevant for today. So thanks so much, Kaspar and Björn, for um, for this interview and this really really nice discussion about this uh, important topic. Thank you both. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain, who helps with the show in the background. And thank you for listening. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com. This is the homepage where you will find all the show notes and lots of more things that will help you to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. If you have not done so, tell your colleagues about this podcast. They may benefit from it as well. And like them, I hope you will reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician. Oh,